Our reading tonight is taken from Luke chapter 7, starting at verse 1, and it can be found on page 1035 in the Pew Bibles. When Jesus had finished saying all this in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, This man deserves to have you do this, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow and a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the coffin, and those carrying it stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. If you keep your Bibles open at Luke chapter 7, this is an incredible section in Luke's gospel. As you know, the identity, the real identity of the real Jesus, we're given that in Luke's gospel. Who is Jesus? How do we find out? We'll go to the Bible. Go to Luke's gospel and you'll find out just exactly who we're dealing with. Who has been sent? What can he do? What will he do for you? These two bits of this reading tonight are actually quite emotional. There's a lot of emotional tension. There's been a death. There's been a death of an only son of a widow. There's been a a report of sickness of someone who's deeply valued within a household of a centurion. A massively emotional passage in Luke chapter 7. And Jesus feels it. Feels it deeply. And where Jesus is, what do we find? We find disease dealt with. We find death dealt with. Let's have a look. Let me pray first. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true. We thank you that you speak to us through it, that the true Christ, the true Messiah, 
the true Jesus is revealed, not the Jesus of our imagination or the Jesus of our wishful thinking, but the one true and living God. We pray that we may hear these words in Jesus' name. Amen. What is the kind of world that you want? Would you like a world that is absolutely free from pain? I could imagine that for many of you here, that would be well worth having, perhaps physical pain, perhaps emotional pain, a world without pain. What about a world without disease? Those of you who've just trained five years and are now doctors, you may not want that just at the minute because you'd be out of a job. Is the kind of world that you want a world without disease, where where there's no cancer, where there's no dementia? Wouldn't that be a great world? Could you imagine it? What about despair? Often these three things are connected, aren't they? Pain, disease, then despair. If you've been sick, if you've been laid low for quite a while, I'm sure in the middle of that, one of those dark, sleepless nights, you have despaired of your circumstances. You wonder, what is going on? What is going to happen? I have no idea. Where has this come from? What on earth is going on? And you think to yourself, is there any way out? You yearn for the time when there was simply no disease, no pain, emotional or physical. You yearn for that time. You yearn for those normal days, the days that were carefree. No pain, no disease, no despair. I think, I think if you were to write on a piece of paper the kind of things that you would want in a world, maybe a new world, a world that you would build, the world that we all want, it wouldn't have any of those things. It wouldn't have the black side of life, the dark side of life. It wouldn't have the difficult side of life included. And especially it wouldn't have this bit. Death. No death. No pain. No disease. No despair. No death. Is that the kind of world that you would like? That's the world of make-believe, isn't it? That's the world of wishful thinking. Come on, Trevor. What are you talking about? You know that there's pain, disease, despair, death. You know that. What kind of thing are you leading us to? What kind of thing are you trying to promote this evening? It's a fact of life, death. That's something I say at funerals or with the bereaved. In my role, I have the privilege of sitting with those who've been recently and desperately, in some cases, bereaved. And we talk and talk and talk, and we say that why, if death is so much a part of life, does it hurt so much? Wouldn't you give your back teeth for a world that didn't have any of these things? Pain, disease, despair, death. We know, of course, that that is not our world. We know that these things characterize our world. We know that these things are our world. But I don't know if you picked up whenever we read Luke chapter 7. I don't know if you picked up just exactly what happened in the face of disease and in the face and reality and presence of death. Did you pick it up? 
You see, you could easily dismiss this whole thing, couldn't you? This, this whole story of Jesus, as Jesus has been outlined for us by Luke, this doctor, interestingly. You could dismiss it, but you will notice here that Luke is a great pains to include details, geographical details, biographical details, historical details, so that his writing could be verified, could be checked out. You'll notice that there's geography mentioned here, names mentioned here, figures, public figures in society, well-known figures in this society. This, of course, is what Luke wants to do. He wants to build our confidence. He wants to build our certainty that what has come to pass, he says in chapter 1, around verse 2, verse 3, he wants to give us absolute certainty that what is claimed about Jesus is true, indeed verifiable. And this, chapter 7, is just another one of those examples. There's a lot of geography in Luke. Luke is also responsible for writing another book in the New Testament called The Acts of the Apostles. I don't know whether you're familiar, but there's a couple of books on. And the same thing happens. Luke is to do with the mission of Jesus. Acts is to do with the mission of Jesus' church. And they're written in virtually the same way. Geography, history, significance, Luke and Acts. We've got geography mentioned here in Luke chapter 7. We've got individuals mentioned here in Luke chapter 7. So in the claims of Luke chapter 7 that in the face of disease, in the face of death, Jesus rules both, it's all very easily verifiable. Now, of course, these figures have long gone this widow who experienced this widow, this, listen to that, a widow experiencing the death of her only child? She's long gone. The child's long gone. This centurion slave, both of whom are long gone. So you can't look them up on Facebook, check their Instagram. You can't ring them. But Luke was so keen that in history, Jesus comes, and he's verifiably proved to be who he claims he is. That is Jesus. So, have a look at Luke chapter 7. If you've got a Bible in front of you, please look it up. If you're on your phone, please look it up. Luke chapter 7, page 1035, 1035. It would be really, really good to have that somewhere nearby. Luke chapter 7. Listen to this. When Jesus had finished saying all this in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. What is the all this? We'll cast your eye up to chapter 6, verse 46, or listen to it. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? That's Jesus speaking. And do not do what I say. I will show you what he is like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. He is like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When the flood came, the torrent struck that house because he could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put in practice, is like a man who built a house on a ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Jesus aligns his words with importance. Jesus aligns his words with power. Jesus says that in Luke chapter 6 at the end of it, and then in Luke chapter 7, we have it demonstrated. His words have authority his words of power, his words of essence. 
So chapter 7, verse 1, when Jesus had finished saying all this, in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. There, there's a geographical date, just by the way, geographical note, not date, geographical note, by the way, Capernaum. So he's reading it a history and time and place. This is no fairy tale. In the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. There was a centurion servant. A centurion led, was a captain in the Roman army, and he led a hundred men. Significant, not ten men, not a thousand men, but a hundred men. Pretty well known, pretty important, pretty significant, pretty powerful. A centurion servant whom his master valued highly. This servant, uh, you may re- need to revisit what you think about slavery and the Bible. The relationships of the slaves to their masters was close. It wasn't the abusive thing that we understand today when we talk about slavery. Because what we see here, a centurion servant whom his master valued highly was about to die. Verse 2, there is a centurion servant whom the master valued highly was sick and about to die. Disease. Pretty serious disease. We aren't told exactly what it was, but we don't need to be told exactly what it was, do we? Sick. About death. It was pretty serious. Death was imminent. And out of emotion, out of love, the centurion, this hard-nosed centurion, Roman centurion, was emotional. The centurion, verse 3, heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to ask him, asking him to come and heal his servant. He, he had heard of Jesus. He had heard the rumors, the stories, the reports of Jesus. It may have been in the barracks. Here is someone to be worried about. Some kind of insurrectionist. Some kind of insurrection from the Jews possible. Some kind of trouble looming. There's a man called Jesus. He's their leader. He's quite powerful. He does powerful. He does this, 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 and this. His words seem to have effect. He does, says. So how this centurion had heard of Jesus, you go into verse 4. When they came to Jesus, these are the emissaries who, se- who are sent. The centurion's a big man, an important man, a significant man, hugely significant. So he could have just rocked up to Jesus and demanded. He might have wanted to be terribly public about it. But he didn't go himself. We'll see in a second why. He didn't go himself because he realized that this Jesus figure was a fairly significant figure to be taken seriously. For a centurion to take anyone other than his boss seriously, and indeed the ruler, the governor, indeed the Caesar seriously, for a centurion to do that is quite significant. Don't miss those details as you read this. Don't let your familiarity break contempt when you approach this text. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. These are the emissaries who've been sent on behalf of the centurion. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with Jesus. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. He he probably recruited one or two from within the Jewish senior leadership 
to go to Jesus, to approach Jesus. He, he must have been terribly desperate. Where, how humbling it is for a Roman centurion to rap on the door of one of the local Jewish elders or send him a text message, whatever it was, and say, I need help. Would you represent me to Jesus and maybe plead with him? And You can see this centurion. We don't know exactly what category he was. Was he a God-fearer? Was he a proselyte? Was he a Jew? Well, no, none of those things, but he had an appreciation. He liked the existence of the synagogue system. He liked the existence of this religion because it kept the peace. No civil disorder from the Jews. Their system seemed to be anti-violence. They seemed to be reasonably like pacifists. So he, he may have appreciated the existence in the way that a state tolerates a church. He may have appreciated the existence of the synagogue and the system. He loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So what did Jesus do? Well, humbly, he responds. Jesus went with them, being encouraged by these emissaries, by these local Jewish leaders, elders of the Jews. Verse 4, Jesus went with them. The tension's building. He was not far from the house, verse 7, when the centurion sent friends to him to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but say the word and my servant will be healed. What are you hearing from this centurion? Is it the bluster of the barracks room? The leader of a hundred men? What are you hearing from the centurion? Are you hearing humility? How are you when it comes to Jesus? Familiar? Over-familiar? Do you realize who you're dealing with when you're dealing with Jesus? Do you realize who he is? This man realized, this centurion, this Gentile centurion, that's hugely significant. Think of the huge social distinctions that there were at that time, Jew, Gentile. The Romans represented the Gentile world. They ruled virtually the Gentile world. They're ruling this part of the Jewish world. And a Gentile knows Jesus. In humility, knows Jesus realizing that his words have power, have authority. Don't trouble yourself, verse 6, verse 7. For I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word. What happened in the previous chapter? Chapter 6, verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? I will show you what he is like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. 
The words of Jesus are huge, aren't they? Hugely significant. And what do we find? They're hugely powerful. Say the word and my servant will be healed. How does the centurion view Jesus? Well, he sees Jesus in military terms, verse 8, as he compares himself with Jesus. I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, verse 8. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. The centurion's words have power, but of course, the centurion's words don't have any power to heal this servant. Only Jesus' words have power to heal this servant. Well, how does Jesus respond? Because you can say, no way. You're too much of a Gentile. You're too much of a sinner. You're too much of someone, well, my culture and my we don't like. Verse 9, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. There are only two times in the New Testament that Jesus' amazement is recorded. This is one of them. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. Amazed at a Roman centurion? And he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. What is faith? Well, faith is the acknowledgement of who Jesus is. Faith is the acknowledgement of Jesus' power. Faith is the acknowledgement of Jesus' authority. This man, this centurion, this Gentile, has more of it than the entire nation of Israel, God's people, put together. I have not found such great faith even in Israel. That's a rebuke to Israel. In Luke's gospel, and then in that little volume that comes a few chapters, a few books later, Acts, it's all about those outside of the Jewish family who receive Jesus, who acknowledge who Jesus is, and who receive salvation and rescue. If you're a Christian here this evening, that's you. Well, of course, it's all fairy tale, this story, isn't it? All wishful thinking. An interesting story for a pre-bank holiday Sunday evening, for a pre-line of duty. I assume you've got iPlayer tuned up. You've got your sky planner worked out. See, it would be just a nice story if it ended there. But it ends at verse 10. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. What do you make of that? Wishful thinking? This, this is pre-NHS days. It hadn't been brought to casualty in the the length of time it took the centurion to get from one place to another, or the, indeed the emissaries to get from one place to another, that there'd been a kind of a, a, a bit of magic. Jesus' words are so powerful, 
Jesus is so powerful without even being in the room. What happens? Disease disappears. Jesus rules disease. A lot of emotion in verse 9, a lot of tension in verse 9. He turns around. It's almost as if he's turning around to the whole nation of Israel and saying, look what I've found out here, Israel. You really should be where they are, Israel. Jesus rules disease. Secondly, Jesus rules death. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. This was one of those awful scenarios, the death of a child. One of those awful scenarios where a widow who's lost her husband loses what? Only son? This is the stuff of nightmares. This is stuff of weeping and wailing. Of course, the burial and the mourning process, this aspect of it happens really quickly. There's no modern technique of embalming here, at least the modern technique of embalming. Burials happened at least within the same day, perhaps at most within 24 hours. And you can imagine the grief. I've lost my husband. I've lost my son. I cannot believe it. There's some geography here, as there was. This is verifiable, as Capernaum was, the centurion. There's a widow of Nain. Check it out, Luke says. Jesus approaches the town gate as this mourning process was beginning, as the body was being brought out in a plank. The bodies were covered perhaps with a sheet, perhaps wrapped in a sheet and brought out. What do you think would happen if it were you? Well, you would mourn too, I guess. But dead people stay dead. But not when Jesus is around. As he approached verse 12, the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. Nain was a small city. It wasn't even a city, a town. About 200 people, 200, 250 people. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. And he said, don't cry. You see, what is the reaction to death? The most natural reaction is tear. Our tear ducts get exercised. We weep. Our mourning is expressed. She was very human. She realized what had happened. Listen to the next bit. Then he went up and touched the coffin. And those carrying it stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. I've been in scenarios, funerals, 
they've been involved in, and a deceased's relative gets up, a brother or a friend gets up and starts to provide a tribute, a eulogy about the person. I always cringe whenever they begin to talk to the coffin. A friend of mine's mother died about 11, 12 years ago, and he began to talk to his mother. He was a minister, and he began to talk to the coffin. Here's Jesus talking to a coffin. And here's Jesus absolutely insensitively saying, young man, I say to you, get up. Wishful thinking. Impossible. That sort of thing doesn't happen. You can imagine the murmurs. Uh, this, this crowd who were there, virtually the whole town may have known this woman, grieving with her the loss of her husband, then the loss of her son. He went up, touched the coffin, and those carrying stood still. And Jesus says, what? Oh, you madman. Dead men don't get up. Mark of death, isn't it? What happens? We have two Old Testament similar type stories. In 1 Kings chapter 17 and in 2 Kings chapter 4, God's prophets, Elijah and Elisha, were involved in the raising of a widow's son. In those cases, though, in Elijah's case in 1 Kings chapter 17, he had to lie on the dead body three times before the dead body was brought alive again. In 2 Kings, we have a resurrection, well, a resuscitation, in 2 Kings chapter 4. And then when the one who's formerly dead, the widow Shumite's son, formerly dead, gets up and sneezes. What do we have here? We have an instant resuscitation. Verse 15, on Jesus' word, young man, I say to you, get up, Jesus witnessed, and they witnessed, verse 15, the dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. What? Just think of this. This is death being reversed. This is a widow, a mother, being reunited with her son. Where Jesus is, disease disappears. Where Jesus is, death disappears. The young man sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave him, how much more effective was Jesus compared to those prophets, Elijah and Elisha? They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. Of course they were going to say that, but did they have true faith? Did they recognize who Jesus was properly? Or did they think he's another one of these prophets from the Old Testament? Because that is entirely short-changing Jesus. Jesus is the one whom these prophets in the Old Testament both shadowed, foreshadowed, and spoke about. Jesus is the great rescuer who raises those who are his people from death. 
to be reunited with all of those who are His people and Him forever. That's who you're dealing with when you're dealing with Jesus. That's who we're dealing with when we read about Jesus as Luke reveals Jesus to us. Is that the Jesus you understand to be flowing off the pages of Luke's gospel? Or have you reduced Jesus to a manageable deity? Is he the ruler whose words are powerful? Is he the one in front of whom we cast, throw ourselves down on the ground and say, Lord, have mercy? Is he that to you? You see, the centurion got it right. The centurion got it right, and he witnessed the powerful words of Jesus. The widow got it right. Well, you know, her her grief indicated that she got it right because she knew that without Jesus, this was the end. So what kind of world do you want to live in? Do you want to live in a world without disease, without death, without struggle, without pain, without difficulty? Well, where Jesus is, that world is. You may or may not be a Christian this evening. You may or not you may or may not wonder what being a Christian is all about. You may or not like, think this is all reasonably nonsensical. It might be good for you to catch up with the life course beginning on Tuesday night. Dave will mention that in just a minute. To find out exactly who Jesus is, why he's come, and the right response to Jesus. You may imagine yourself to be a bit above Jesus. You've heard about him before, you've grown up hearing about him, and, well, so what? Don't let your familiarity with Jesus remove the awe and wonder of exactly who we are dealing with when we're dealing with Jesus. The one who's not even in the room and someone who's on the verge of death is made well again. Someone who's been carried out in the coffin or on that plank who's dead and is made alive again. That's Jesus, the real Jesus, who's come to seek and to save that which was lost. Let's pray.